Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 20 of the Stolen Signs podcast. I'm Kendall Gilmet here with Harry Pavlidis. Hello, Harry. Hello, Kendall. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Glad to hear that. Um, we We're in the middle of spring training, and it's good. This opening day is like two weeks away or so. Yeah, my son was. Uh, we were counting down the days. We have a big calendar in our uh, like dining room, kitchen area, and we're going to the um, opening day game up in Seattle. And nice. um, he's like, "How long is it till opening day?" And I was like, "You tell me." He's <laughs> and he's like, doop, 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 doop. and uh, he's like, "All right." It was I think this was yesterday, so it was whatever, fourteen days or eight. No, 16 days, yeah. yeah. So, it's getting close. It's going to be very soon. Yep. Getting close. Um, you know it's close because Tim Tebow was sent back to minor league camp. Know, That's the sign that. of season correction. He's going to play in the major leagues this year. And David Wright won't. That's going to be sad. Yeah. I'm a, David Wright actually makes me a little sad. Oh, like, yeah, should, should. I mean, it's definitely sad that like his his health over the course it's, of his career, it's bad. It's like it's not just a baseball problem for him anymore. Yeah. It's like it hurts to like it's 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 very it's, it's like, it sucks. It's like, dude, just just walk away. Like he doesn't want to. Ugh. I mean, I, I I mean I can't imagine being a professional baseball player, but I can't imagine being like I'm still gonna do it. I'm still gonna push and try and rehab and. That's what. That. Yeah, and that's what he does. Yep. Well. Wish him all the best and and hope mm-hmm. him hope he is uh, healthy. But uh, yeah, oof. see, he might. If, you know, I guess in May he's due to start. You oh, know, man, baseball activities again. So we'll see. That's hopefully. But I'm, I'm you know considering how bad it's been. It's hard to be too optimistic. It's, yeah, for sure, for sure. It's been a couple of years now. So well, that's a cheerful opening yeah, to the show. Here we go, everybody. Baseball's on its way, but David Wright is is, is not extremely yeah. hurt. Chivo has been demoted, and Wright is hurt. So thanks for tuning in, Mets fans. Yeah. Oh uh, no, there's so much to talk about. There's so many things. Like this, the free agent stuff has finally started. Yes, <laughs> finally. The hot stove is really finally under. Yeah, we all expected that March would yeah. be the time where yeah, Jake Arrieta would sign his split, deal. Right. Yeah, so like we've talked about this all winter that this is going to screw up our projections because of our standings. So there's all there's you know dozens of wins above replacement out there on the open market. Like an 84 win team was out there. Right. Uh, uh, then uh, th- things have changed. Like we noticed, like when uh, the Cubs pulled in Darvish, they had like a three game bump. Another another three game bump happened to the Phillies. Who'd they sign? They signed uh, some guy uh, that Cubs fans may know very well, and that uh, Oriole fans will probably know as well. Barely. Yeah, I've heard of him, Mr. Jake yeah. Arrieta. Arrieta, Cy Young Award winner, World Series champion, no hitter, thrower, beard uh, haver. Beard haver. He's. Uh, Despite his slightly declining uh, stuff, he signed what finally signed it with the Phillies. What so, do you think about that move? Uh, 
surprised that he went to the Phillies? No, because he was he mentioned it seemed like all all winter as as Phillies were a possibility. Yeah, yeah so I, the contract is you know, they've been calling it three twenty five, but it's it's like thirty the first year, then they're saying opt out, but it could be like five years, one hundred twenty five, even one hundred thirty seven million. So, yeah, his was the biggest deal of the offseason, right? I, I mean, if it uh, gets to be that, like if it, I don't think there's anybody else. Escalates. I mean, what was really most notable is that all these things happened late. That a ton of dudes didn't really get big league contracts. Like uh, Neil Walker, just apparently only got one major league offer. And you know he's he's base he, he's a good a solid reliable ball player and still has some time left to him and he you know he didn't go and get much. Lance Lynn got one year, twelve million I think. The Twins. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, and I know that the Twins are like better than a lot of people think. And Twins, they, by the way, improved two wins since our initial estimates came out February eighth. Right. So as of right now, they're estimated for eighty three wins. Right. Right. Right, they were at so they're right at that. Where they are now is in like wild card thickness. <laughs> they are, you know, it, if things are as projected, which they won't be, uh, the Yankees, Indians, and Astros would be division champions. But what's kind of changed since the last run of of this? It would have been looked like Red Sox and Rays were the projected wild card teams. Now it'd be projected to still be the Red Sox who gained two wins, probably because of the Martinez guy. Um, but the second team would suddenly be possibly the Twins. Rays also are eighty three. Mariners eighty two from eighty three. They went down one. So basically, they're right. You know, in the mix, they improved noticeably, and they're a team that's in the in the in the sniffing for the second wild card. So, I thought, you know. it, was, I thought it was interesting when Lynn talked about um, the reason he chose the Twins was because he wanted a chance to win now. And <laughs> that makes me a little curious about what other offers were out there because that's maybe with a rotation spot and like chance to sniff the playoffs, but I don't know. I thought that was kind of cur- a curious like explanation of of why he chose the twins, but I guess rotation spot makes makes a big difference. He's not going to get really sweet rotation spot with the Astros or something. No, sure. What they say and what they feel, what they should say, are all different things. So, <laughs> so looking at this, like. The average team changed by a, a, a win or a loss, one direction or the other. Nobody changed more than three. Just the Phillies and the Cubs improved three, a bunch of teams two, or even negative two, but no negative threes. And just six teams stayed stayed the same. So that's a, that was some movement in the depth charts. <laughs> yeah. So in, the nas- in the National League, we ran down the... Um, oh, yeah, we did the American. Yeah, so in the National League, it would... It's the same division winners. I mean, it was Nationals, Cubs, and, and Dodgers, and it still is. And actually, no change really at all. Still looks like D-backs and Cardinals are the are the uh, favorites. If you were handicapping uh, specifically the NL Central, um, actually, interestingly, the NL Central, every team 
either improved or stayed the same? Yeah, the Pirates stayed the same. Every other team went up one or three. Yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. But if you were handicapping the um, NL Central, is is this the order? Currently the order is Cubs, Cardinals, Brewers, Pirates, Reds. Would you go in that order? I mean, the Cardinals and Brewers are, you know, one game different, you know, like one win, 85 and 84. So, I mean, it could be Brewers, Cardinals. I don't know. But, yeah, basically, sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, mean, yeah, it sounds – I wouldn't expect it to be terribly different than this. Yeah. The Reds may have – the Reds, remember, the, the worst teams are going to be worse than we project usually. Right. All the Marlins, we, got, we really hate some of these teams, so I'm going to have to take that back. But, yeah, that looks about right. And the West, I feel like the Giants, wow. I mean, the Giants is being actually got worse, two games worse. <laughs> they signed a lot of guys. Maybe we didn't like who they signed. That's kind of funny. Yeah. But, you know, Dodgers went from 99 to 97 wins. Like, so, well, wow. Astros stayed at 99. Yankees went up to 97. Red Sox. So, like, the, the big winners are Red Sox, Twins, Phillies, and the Cubs the most above them. And the losers were the White Sox, Dodges, and the Giants. I'd say the Giants losing two, and they're a little going from 84 to 82 wins is probably the most hurdy of them. But again, that middle, you know, no big changes. And with Nothing the. Crazy. Um, with the reason. That they would go down, would that be other teams got better, or would that be? Could um, be, yeah, sure, maybe. It'd be both, yeah. I mean, it could be that their schedule got harder somehow, yeah. But or we just simply had changes in their depth charts. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, that makes. <laughs> you know, sense. I mean, it's like it's all of the things that you know, it's signings, their own, others, but mostly just I would focus on their own. You know, but yeah, obviously, if some if some teams are being projected to win more, they're going to come out of somebody else's account. Right, that makes sense. So that's that. That's that's our updated Pakoda. Pakoda, yeah, we'll look again sometime in May or July. Well, as we put that to bed, um, I want to encourage you all to follow us on Twitter at stolen underscore signs. You can email us with any questions or feedback or or anything like that. Uh, stolen underscore signs at baseballperspectus.com. We are on iTunes. You can write and review us. We appreciate those very much. So now we're going to talk about our contest that we had huh? for <laughs> The Shift uh, by Russell Carlton. Uh, so last episode, we asked you all to send in your completion of this sentence. One small step for man, one giant leap for blank. And we got some, we got a few responses. Got a few responses. Some from people we know who already have the book. We're two winners. We picked two winners. Yeah. We're two winners. So... Um, you actually made us laugh. Yes. Out. Oh, that was the test. So we had one and then another came and was like, well, that one's good too. So, so. we um, are going to send a book out to Jennifer. And Jennifer's entry was One Small Step for Man, One Giant Leap for Chris Coglin. And perfect. Jennifer also included the video of Chris Coglin. <laughs> 
uh, jumped over Yachty and scored. Flying. And that was pretty very good choice. Yes. Pretty good choice, yeah. And so, Jennifer, I will uh, be sending you an email and getting your address, and we'll be sending you a book. Congratulations. Also, Joe, and Joe's entry was One Small Step for Man, One Giant Leap for Carter Caps. And uh, um, I like that one as well. And so, Joe, we will be getting in touch with you as well and sending you a book. So, thanks everybody who sent in entries. And if you didn't win, go buy the book. Go buy the book. It's good. Super good. And it's uh, really enjoyable. <clears throat> I'm almost done reading it. I'm like, not quite almost done, but I have started and I am enjoying it thoroughly. So. Buy it, read it. It's it's. You'll learn a lot about sabermetrics. The more you'll learn about it in a very conversational and conceptual manner. And it's really, I think I think it's a very good introduction. And more, it's like not, it's it's a it's a book that's good for. Uh, it's one of those weird ones where it actually I think will work for people who don't haven't been fully indoctrinated into this this world. So even some people are new to this. It's a good book. Um, but also if you are been thinking about these things for a long time, he challenges a lot of the orthodoxy and thinks you through and, and walks you through how you ask questions and how you, and, and it becomes very, very useful and instructive in that way. So, yeah, Russell's really good at, uh, yeah, it's a good, it's well done taking a, a human look, but also giving the really technical and deep dives into kind of the guts in the answers to the questions, but like Harry said, um, a lot of um, how to ask questions or, or how to think about what questions to ask. So, and it's not really a lot of math. There's only a few tables of like really important numbers to illustrate things, and it's a it's a good read. It's an enjoyable read. It's a good story, basically, because <laughs> a lot of it is about his own personal experiences and how they relate to baseball stuff. So, pretty cool. Yeah. So, uh, again, thanks for every everybody sending stuff in and thanks to Russell for writing a very enjoyable book. We will be back with Jeff long and we're going to talk about some pitching stuff. So stick around. Georgia. Georgia. The whole day through Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind Okay, okay. Um, so, we are going to talk pitch design stuff, right? Spin pitch, measure, pitch. measurement. Pet, yeah, well, because people look at spin when they design their pitches. So it's all related, man. All right. But yeah, it's but pitch design is like the hottest topic amongst the medium <laughs> topics in esoteric baseball. But uh, well, last last time, Kendall, you you found that uh, what that Yankees thing, right? Yes. Well, I think Brent, somebody found yeah, that. Yeah, I don't remember if it was me or you, but yeah, it's us. It was us. The Stolen Science Podcast found it. Right. Um, yeah. It's a thing that's going on in baseball. 
like you know, Driveline talks about it. Trevor Bauer incessantly talks about it on you know, and it, it goes back to like Brian Bannister and Granky and Brandon McCarthy. I mean, there, there's those you know, this is goes back a long time, but now it's kind of mainstreamed and more sophisticated as well. So, so you mentioned yeah. you mentioned Driveline and um they came up with what is it called Bauer units is that does that does that measure spin it's a, it's this notion that I, I think is interesting but I don't know if it's quite right <laughs> I'm not convinced by it but the notion that um spin and speed are related you know within a pitcher it's like if you take speed off you're taking spin off or something like that so it's like you have to figure out the relationship between speed and spin individualized to a pitcher, but it is exceptionally difficult to increase spin rate without also increasing velocity. But does that mean that like a, a, a harder, faster curveball is going to spin less no. than a, like a 12 to six? No. So it's not population. It's not a population, um, correlation it's an individual correlation so like if you take a pitcher and they throw 90 miles an hour at 2000 rpms they will probably never throw 90 miles an hour and 2800 rpms but they may throw 95 miles an hour and 2800 rpms so for each individual pitcher they have sort of like their own individual relationship between spin rate and velocity and as you increase velocity spin rate will increase but um you know, it's kind of the t- it works telling pitchers to throw softer and stuff. It's weird. It's like it's. I think it's yeah. like it. May, it might be real, but I don't think it's the study has been sufficient to establish it. No, and they've only really done fastballs because obviously there's a lot more factors impacting spin on breaking balls and things of that nature. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, essentially the idea behind Bauer units is like for any individual pitcher their spin and velocity is highly correlated. So increasing one will naturally increase the other or vice versa. Yeah. But I'm not sure what that really tells us. We, we don't know what that tells us, but we know that that correlation exists. Is that kind of within his a sample of pictures, like in his lab? Yeah. That's so, fair. It's fair. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's something it's, it's, yeah. but again, it's like, you know, what, what aspect of spin you know, so when these guys are designing pitches, they're talking not about just about um, spin-induced movement comes apparently you know two ways. One is the Magnus force movement, which is the, you know the, basically the pressure differential you know on different side of the ball, opposite the direction of the spin or something, whatever. You know, so you know if you have backspin on the ball, it seems to rise. It doesn't actually rise, but it seems to have carry. It falls slower on the ball. It, what was that? It falls slower. It falls slower. I think that it has carry. I kind of like that because I think people kind of get it. Like the um, some pitchers said it when they're talking about what they've warned recently about like keeping uh, the ball down. Danny Who, Farquhar. Yes, whose middle name or nickname has to be Mother. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's Lord. Yeah, I might find better. Don't say it though. Um, oh. So, 
Yeah, so he understood that if he's got a high spin fastball, that's going to work up in the zone because it's going to be deceptive or seem to have that carry. If he throws it down the zone with high spin, it's going to seem to be more hittable. Um, and that's kind of makes sense because sinker ballers try to take you're trying to take spin off the ball, reduce mm. the amount of spin because it's this you know any any amount of backspin is going to cause that lift that carry to occur. So the less spin rate you have, the better in terms of getting drop. So part of the sinker is like it changing the orientation of the seams and the tilt of the, the spin of the ball. That's one part of it, but it's also if you could take a little bit of spin off of it. Yeah, you can get, get a bit more drop. It's all very and also complicated. The, long, the slower and the pitch is also thrown a little slower. Gravity has more time. There's all these, you know, this is the, yeah. as Jerry Weinstein, Weinstein calls it, the gravitational sinker, which is you know basically got an 80 mile an hour fastball. With, with uh, a sinker, is that just like from a physical? Would you? Um, I'm just I'm holding a baseball right now. Would you just not like? Well, don't hold it four seams. Hold it two seams. Two seams, but you would just not really like finish the pitch. Well, like, is that kind of? Yeah. Um, hmm, no. Well, I I would. There's probably different finger pressure. You're trying to get the. You're trying to get inside the ball more. Yeah, you generally put more finger pressure on like your pointer finger, and that pushes the ball toward the outside. But also, like you, you can't run it a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you hooking the seam a little bit to try and get a little more of that turn. But yeah, you're not ripping right. it. exactly. You're not like you ripping down on this cross seam grip, right? So you don't which is get what that. you do on a four seam, right? On a four seam fastball, you're basically using one of the seams as like a lever, and so you're yanking on that lever to give the ball backspin. And, and there's a two seam fastball like that where you're across the seams. That that's another you know there's the kind of that, that's kind of the in between, but that's not a sinking two seamer generally speaking. That just yeah. And that's where you would like instead of gripping on the, um, I forget what it's called, instead of gripping on the uh, like kind of uh, long thin white part, yeah, you, you grip like across the horseshoe, right? Yes, but then you to like, like then you have like Carlos Zambrano. There's a really good video if you can find it of him talking to Harold Reynolds about his stuff. And Z threw a whole lot of stuff. Um, and he, you can see it in this data too, what I'm about to describe was that he would throw his, and you can see it's a lot of pictures. I think he had a sinker. He's like, but he's like, I have a two seamer and I have a sinker type of approach where he had like that pretty common, like just, yeah, just between the seams kind of resting just on the edges of the seams. But he's like, if I wanted to get the sink more and then he shows Harold that he moves his fingers closer together. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's, and you can see this little extra bubble of sink that, you know, for whatever reason that, you know, gripping it that way, whatever, and perhaps combination of other things, finger action, pronation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get less, yeah, less men too. Um, but yeah, it's then, all very complicated. And then there's I'm now that everybody's talking about the laminar spin. Yeah. Which is. It's fun. It's like the, if the surface of the ball is smooth to one side of the spin axis, like one pole, you can See, get the easiest push way. off the yeah, opposite direction of the way it should be moving. Is that, that it? Yeah. So if basically like, um, like Kendall, do you know how a plane wing works? Like why a plane wing creates lift? So 
that's laminar airflow is when a plane is trying to get lift um, or when you're trying to, you know, change the amount of lift that the plane has, they use the ailerons and they create like a different airflow pattern over the wing. And so when you get a drastically different airflow pattern on one side of the wing or the other, it actually like literally suctions the plane up. So it's not actually that wind is pushing the plane up. It's that you're creating a negative pressure differential. And so the, the plane is literally being sucked up into the air because it's a lower pressure above the wing and a higher pressure below the wing. Um, laminar flow works like that, where you throw the ball in such a way that you essentially have, um, if you're looking at a 2D image of the ball coming at you from the pitcher, one side of the ball will have seams constantly, and the other side of the ball will have a big old white spot. And that's the smooth part of the ball. And so the wind moves much more quickly over the um, smooth part of the ball and much more slowly over the seams side. And so that creates a pressure differential on either side of the ball, which literally sucks the ball to the direction of um, the, it sucks the ball to the direction of the smooth patch, I think. And I think this has been like one of the first, what was like a, uh, might have been Javier Vasquez where he threw a pitch that basically was a splitter that moved the wrong way. I think Alan Nathan and Dan Brooks, people like saw it and like figured it out. Like this because the way it oriented the ball and there was something, you know, strange. And then now it's about, I think Bauer's trying to get his sinker or something to match up like his Magnus force movement with the laminar movement or something to get like yes. extra. <laughs> so now everybody's talking about how can we see if is, like if there is more movement being than predicted in his pitch. Is that phenomenon is that phenomenon that you just meant that you were just talking about, Jeff? Um is that where like I think it's for a slider, it looks like there's like a little red eye on the ball? Or there's some pitch that has yeah. that and that's kind of a way is that like you were mentioning how you can see the seams in one area but you can't in the other? Is that that phenomenon or is that no that's different? different so that is um the so like a red dot slider is because of seam orientation but essentially what happens there is okay. that your spin axis is pushed directly through one of the seams so it's like spinning on it's like a top that's spinning um so, so that's yeah. why so we it's called kind of a dime a dime slider nickel it's, slider it's, it's, yeah yeah so it's like a dime slider is a good one it's tight yeah nickel slider is the one that was a little wobbly and you can pick it up you, you would you know it would kind of hang yeah by the I way i just spoke earlier the ball moves towards the rough side so it's towards you throw, the rough side yeah. yeah it's just this shit's complicated man <laughs> it's hard <laughs> it's like so the ball's gonna move and then you know there's just there's just so much to it but the big thing kind of there's these are all kind of the, the refinements on movement of the ball, the finger pressures, the, the kind of the wrist actions, or yeah. you know all those things. But the big commanding feature of moving the ball is just your arm path. Yeah, it's like that's so like over the top or sidearm or you're constrained like arm path that. Yeah, your choices to how you're going to the ball will move will be constrained. So if I want to throw the ball hard uh, and straight overhand, it's going to be, you know, a pitch that's, you know, not going to move side to side very much. 
it's just going to be straight-ish or have carry. Uh, because you can't put that kind of spin on it when your arm angle is so straight right. up and yeah, down. Yeah, like if you look at Clayton Kershaw, like everything is straight up and down. Like there's there's no – you don't look at his slider and go, wow, look at the lateral movement on his slider. Because there basically isn't any. It's It has a – it's movement – it's spin induced movement and his everything. It's just because it's just forcing the ball down more. Like it, it, that's what his slider is doing. It's, it's dropping. And then his curveball drops like insanely because he's spinning a lot, but it doesn't really go side to side. You know, it, it's so you hear scouts talk about two plane movement where the ball goes, you know, changes goes sideways and downward. You, you get that because of your arm angle for the most part. I mean, you can accentuate and get more or less and have more quality and better complementary pitches or whatever with all the, the techniques. But, you know, for example, you're not going to throw a sinker that actually drops, you know, like unless you're throwing sidearm. Yeah. There no day. Right. And you're not going to be able to throw a fastball that, quote, rises unless you're throwing underhand. Jenny Finch. Also, there no day, his four sinker. Mm-hmm. She calls what she calls the Jenny Finch. So, and so this was something that <clears throat> Matt Lensner noticed um, many moons ago, you know, looking at pitch FX data that you can pretty much see the arm slot of a pitcher in their pitch FX movement plot. Uh, I, I noticed not too long after that surprise to, to all of us actually that a, I noticed something and that it was something was that you could also see that at home plate. So, you know, I've noticed since then that some pitchers can, can break this pattern. It seems different based on platoons. So there's, there's some nuance here, but you're also constrained with how you're going to work at, at the plate, you know, so Kershaw works up and down more than his side to side. He is, he's not going to get a guy, swinging at a slider that's swiving out of the zone because he doesn't have one that does that because he's throwing over the top. And that would be more like... Yeah, yeah, sale. exactly. Sale, like, throws, right? sale like, throws a curveball, but it's a slider because he's throwing so sideways. Like he's almost sidearm. So it moves sideways. So basically, if you throw a curveball over the top, it goes, it goes 12 to 6. If you throw a curveball sidearm, it goes sideways like a slider. It's... And Sale, if you can find it, he says it, it is a curve. He is moving his hand that way. He is trying to turn that ball over, but his hand is so, you know, unless his wrist can bend an impossible, like, inward angle to bring his hand to a vertical, you know, he can't spin the ball that way. Doesn't have, not with that. So he gets a slider movement out of a, out of a curveball because of his throwing style. Okay, so I have some questions here, guys. But I haven't so, even told you the best part. <laughs> can, that, okay. it, that, like, it, that it's true. It works. Is recording actually, started? <laughs> yeah, we've been. It, 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 it works. <laughs> like it actually has been proven. Like we've looked at, got to look at biomechanical data, and it's a published study that shows the efficacy of the Lensner axis by like if you just know how their their fastball. You, you you can you can correlate like very directly understand what a pitcher's um, actual mechanics are just from knowing how their fastball goes. And if they throw both a fastball and a sinker, it's even easier to figure out. Um, 
So it, it's like an actually empirically valid thing, which means you can, in effect, with some boundaries based on the stuff we talked about first, is predict what a guy's pitch may look like if he can throw with some, you know, if he can master it. You can actually understand what a pitcher's repertoire would look like for pitches they haven't started to throw yet. Yeah, if I can, let me jump in here and just sort of give an overview on it so that it's not, because Harry was obviously intimately involved in the process of kind of uh, putting this paper together, and I feel like it's a little uh, gosh for him to describe it himself. But, um, (laughs) so, Mm. as any any good baseball nerd does, I have a folder of um, sort of academic published papers uh, that are relevant to baseball, which includes, you know, the Frisbee dog paper and a lot of stuff from Rob Gray. Frisbee dogs and center fielders, baby. That's right. Yeah. That's the greatest paper in the history of sports science. (laughs) So the first one that actually went in this folder was um, this paper that was done by Dr. Glenn Fleissig of um, the American Sports Medicine Institute, uh, Dan Brooks and Harry. And basically what they set out to do was um, take a look at pitch FX data and compare that to biometric data and see if you could find any relationship between biomechanic data. uh, So literally like putting markers on players and having them pitch in a motion capture lab and and getting actual delivery angles and arm angles and trunk rotations and all those kind of things. Um, And if we could tease any of that out of pitch FX data and what they found um, in a pretty significant way was that you can in fact use pitch FX data to roughly figure out what that arm angle or delivery angle is going to be. Um, There's a lot of kind of factors that impact that, you know, obviously if a pitcher is uh, leaning heavily to one side or something like that, you know, their arm angle can be different than what it appears. And so you can get this, what they call delivery angle, which is really a combination of like trunk tilt and arm angle at release. And, What's really interesting about that is it built on what Matt Lensner had done and presented at the Pitch FX summits that Sport Vision had put on when they first rolled out the Pitch FX system uh, in you know 2007, 2008, 2009 timeframe. And what um, Matt Lensner kind of posited was if you can, if you have an idea of what someone's arm angle is, you can pretty accurately figure out where each of their different pitches would go because within certain bands of reliability, you know that a curveball is going to come off at X, y, X, X, X degrees from uh, the person's arm angle in terms of spin axis and then ultimately movement. And then same thing, you can repeat, repeat that process for every pitch type and that gives you essentially what he called a pitching peanut, because that's sort of what it looks like. You have a big lobe at the top left for a right-handed pitcher or the top right for a left-handed pitcher that includes uh, four-seam fastballs, sinkers, change-ups, that sort of thing. And then, you know, as you move diagonally towards the kind of origin or like a zero-zero point, you're having cutters and sliders and then curveballs that are, you know, big droppers to the glove side of the pitcher. And so that pitching peanut is essentially like all possibilities for movement profiles given a particular delivery angle from a pitcher. And so that was the work that uh, Dr. Glenn Fleissig, Dan Brooks, and Harry did to sort of tease out, are these things kind of mathematically correlated and can we actually predict what they might be um, using some modeling techniques? And they were able to do that. And so 
um, where like where it's basically plot line, like <laughs> it, you know, yeah, it's like, highly take all these different pieces of the trunk and the and the arm and the forearm angle and the, all all the pieces of information that we had from them. Um, <clears throat> and this was you know professional pitchers, like we you know, and we knew who they were. We got so we were able to match them up with the pitch FX data. You know, no identities of the actual subjects were released. It's just that we were able, you know, through basically it's getting HIPAA clearance <laughs> to uh, do the association and publish it in aggregate. And you can just see, it's like if you predict based on, you know, some model that Dan built that, you know, if you have this guy's arm angle and, and really all this information from Glenn's lab and just run this, you know, basically a progression on it, you can, you can predict like within 70 to 80% like reliability or something like that it was ridiculous. It's like, you, you pretty much got it. And it was like if you and if you mixed in how much of their what their pitch mix was like if you had an idea of like how if they threw both fastballs and sinkers on what the relative proportion of it was got even better, so it was like you could really see just from a simple line drawn from this what's predicted and this is how it actually moves, uh, and it was pretty crazy. So it's like like hey this 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 stuff. The stuff is actually useful. <laughs> it's more than just cool. It has actual application. Yeah. And so what I, after kind of ruminating on this pitching peanut research for, uh, I don't know, three years or four years or whatever it was, um, kind of poked and prodded at Harry. And I said, you know, well, it was sort of teased out by some of the conversations that, you know, we've had with different team folks and, uh, you know, pitching coaches and all sorts of things. And um, even seeing what you all had shared previously on an earlier episode of the podcast about how the Yankees, you know, were telling pitchers, hey, you're a good candidate for a cutter um, based on data that we see. Right. So, like, we can say that, you know, a pitcher with a certain repertoire would probably do well to add a certain pitch because other pitchers like them did do throw this pitch, you know, see a lot of success with it. And we thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Um, but the question that, you know, we started poking and prodding around and that was really preceded by the pitching peanut research that they had done was, can we figure out what that pitch would look like? Not just whether or not someone's a good candidate for it, which is really something that can be done through similarity scores and things of that nature. But, um, if they were to throw this new pitch, what might it look like? And so the idea came around that if we took our, this data that we've accumulated and built out that lets us, um, essentially get delivery angle for every pitcher in baseball using their pitch FX data. Um, we could in theory use that to then inform, you know, what it might look like. Kenley Jansen all of a sudden started ripping off curveballs. Um, and you know, there's going to be some error bars with it and we're still kind of working through some of the math, but the idea was really to say, not just, uh, what would it be like if this guy threw a certain pitch or this guy might be a great candidate to throw this new pitch that he doesn't throw, but you know, if Justin Verlander picked up a splitter, what what does it look like? What does that splitter actually look like in terms of movement profile? And we feel pretty confident that using the concepts behind the Lensner axis and the delivery angle research that Harry and um, Dan and, and Dr. Fleissig put together, that we can actually, you know, build a tool and build a model that'll say, if you enter any picture you want and here's their current repertoire, here's what we know about their delivery angle and spin axes and all these different things. And, you know, pick what new pitch you want to add and we'll kind of give you a rough idea of what that pitch might actually look yeah. like in reality when they start throwing it. Yeah. And constrained and, you know, there's going to be, got to be constraints on it, but it's like, you know, 
or you want to call it a slider, it's going to be one of these. And it's like, you know, it's more likely, you know, certain arm slots will be, will lend themselves to different additional techniques. So you'll have additional constraints based on, you know, things like that, which will probably come from comps, but, mm-hmm. uh, but you'd be able to say, okay, if they throw it harder or softer or this or that, and also, or just basically take a picture and say, what do they look like with their arm angle change and see who they're similar to? Or what, what if this guy just got rid of his fastball when cutters, you know, all, all the time? What kind of pictures were, you know, results? Uh, then, you know, so imagine like a shiny app, like, you know, a web app where you're going to just like tune your picture and design that. And then now take that information and throw it into the matchup visualizer. <laughs> what would this picture look like if you pitched like this to this hitter? So you can actually just, you know, instead of just playing back things that have happened kind of say okay i want this picture with this pitch i just designed over here to throw it on the outside corner what does it look like well that's a good sequence with this fastball he already has so getting beyond just you know it's like building all these pieces together it's going to be a ton of work so we're, we're just kind of we just kind of just started on it well jeff's already started writing the article <laughs> it's like first draft i've already started like dude i'm, I'm like you know, you ask me if I'm overselling it. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> we build everything that you just described, and no. <laughs> <laughs> but right now, I'm still like drawing pictures of like how to, um, how to do it based on how to. There's a bunch of ways to do. It. I mean, there's probably some ways to just flat out throw it into a model. Um, but I'm trying to also sketch out what you know, based on my own experience with charting pitches and whatnot, what, what it kind of looks like what the peanut, maybe how, how we kind of decompose it further into something that we can then just use relatively simply. Yeah. So, and then to circle back on the earlier conversation around pitch design, you know, um, this, this kind of structure then provides the basis that can be further enhanced by pitch design. Right. So when we learn about, um, the work that Trevor Bauer is doing with Kyle, a body and uh, drive line and all that kind of thing, you know, what they're doing is essentially they're saying, okay, you know, you throw a sinker, we're going to tweak the grip. We're going to tweak the spin axis. We're going to kind of mess around with finger pressure and all these different things to create a slightly different movement profile. And so what we can do is we can say, you know, if, uh, like, let's say Trevor had never thrown a sinker before we can say, well, if Trevor starts throwing a sinker, it'll probably look something like this and, and give a pretty good idea of it. And then, pitch design is sort of another layer that you can add on to that to say, okay, now that we have an idea of what this pitch is going to look like, we can fine tune, we can add velocity, we can take velocity away, we can um, tweak the spin axis and that's going to change our movement profile. Like you can start kind of and do that in consideration with the rest of the repertoire already there. Exactly. I mean, you, it's like, what is this going to look like against my other pitch? And I think it may be almost easier to you know, comprehend you know, this with terms of change-ups. That's something people definitely say, you know, I want this kind of movement or that. You know, where, where that whole thing where Pedro Martinez was telling, I think it was Plesak on MLB Network, where it was like, well, if you put your hands like this, the ball will have depth. And he's like, oh, no, you know, no one ever told me that. And I have my fingers like this. And Pedro's like, no, 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 that's bad. And he's like, oh, God, you know, <laughs> it's like this retirement has already come and gone. And, it, so that that's something where you get much more of that. I think maybe sliders and cu- slider cutter range, you know, the curveball. Like there's going to be like how guys move in some of those more amorphous areas. I, I mean, that's you know, I think guys tend to play off the prime, the hard stuff 
Bauer probably goes more into the sinker design than someone else may go into a change-up design. You know, he's kind of an extreme in a, in, in a way. Would, would you imagine that like people might use this um, forthcoming tool to generally look into what it might be and then, like Jeff, you were talking about moving more into pitch design where it would be more hands-on with your coach saying, okay, um, or, you know, whatever, with a coach or what what have you to say, okay, then you work on finger pressure or spin or, like, how do, how will we want to spin it, that type of thing. It's where kind of you take the the data and the analysis and, and doing, you know, these tools that, that we're building and then bring that onto the mound and actually they, they have putting that in practice. That we should probably then now talk about some of the tools that they actually use. Yeah. Right. And I think, so it was funny. I was kind of starting to write the introduction to this article and talking a little bit about the methodology and, and how we were thinking about this, tool right and i was going through and i was trying to think of examples of like oh let's find like a cool pitcher that people will be excited to see them add like some new pitch and i started with like max scherzer and justin verlander and Corey kluber and like those jerks all throw like six pitches yeah, already yeah, those aren't the guys yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> but i think that you know the key is like there's usually a reason why a particular player does not throw a certain pitch um you know, it, whether it's they don't have a feel for it or they can't get the movement profile they want or their, you know, the grip doesn't feel right. So what this tool will really do is sort of give the possibilities and then a player and a coach can start tinkering with how do I find the, a grip that gives me the right feel or right. how do I some, And they have the, like, what I'm talking about is the tooling they use, like, you know. Totally. The flight scope, pitch effects, track man, um, what's the yeah. uh, Rapsodo. Uh, and now there's, I, I saw a second one, but there's the smart ball that Diamond Kinetics came out with. But some other company yep. apparently produced a ball. I don't think it's as good. From what yeah, and that's, that's all in addition to like Edgertronic cameras, which, um, you know, was introduced to like Kyle at Driveline through the Bowers. Um, uh, Trevor Bowers' dad actually bought an Edgertronic camera, which is a extremely high-speed camera that shoots at... Um, you know, 10,000 frames per second and shoots really high definition video. And um, it's a father and son, like a corn and tree thing. Those two are like, yes, it's, it's like, where did Trevor get this in crazy curiosity? And t- oh, <laughs> it's like, yeah. Cause father his father has an electronic like, wow. camera. Yeah. Well, in general, they're just, you know, both extremely uh, inquisitive individuals. Yes. So like those types of things can help pitchers really understand. And I know a number of teams, Cleveland, the Dodgers, uh, the Cubs, the Indians, I think I said Cleveland already, but um, you know, all those teams have bought some of these cameras and use it to really look at how do pitches come out of a pitcher's hand? Um, how do different grips um, manifest themselves in terms of spin axis and spin rate? And then, you know, you pair that um, high speed footage data with, you know, a Rapsodo unit or a pitch FX trackman unit in a bullpen. And you can actually have a pitcher start playing around with, um, you know, how does a different grip produce different movement or what does it look like coming out of my hand and how do I pair this better with my fastball or what have you. And that's where you really get into, um, real true pitch design, right? Like you, you start playing with 
the spin axes and the spin rates and the movement profiles of different pitches. And you're doing it in a way where you have sort of visual uh, ground truths because you have this, you know, uh, you have 400 frames of the ball leaving your hand. Um, and yeah, then that's, this is a big deal data. is having that, that type of truth from those cameras that that's, there's nothing at, in all the technologies that exist. There's nothing as <clears throat> true as a measure of spin as what you see on those. Cause all the other systems, it's, some capture of the flight of the ball and some algorithmic approach. They all do it a little differently, but nothing's like directly measuring RPM. Nothing's like directly measuring spin. It's, it's just all this signal detection. So I know people have been saying things like TrackMan is observed spin. It's like, yeah, well it it misses sliders, misses slider spin sometimes. But I I know like that Rapsodo and or FlightScope do it differently. And I'm really curious what these the ball like the ball where the ball is telling you how it's spinning that that new thing from Diamond Mechanics that that's going to have that because what's common to optical and radar systems that if the spin axis is oriented like perpendicular to the sensor doesn't really know how to doesn't really read it correct so yeah, yeah. so I, I like that's like a big deal with sliders like you know and getting an actual axis and all those things so. Uh, Jeff, you probably played with these technologies more than. Uh, have you had flight scope in your hands? I know you had a Rapsodo. I remember you breaking a Rapsodo, actually. Uh, <laughs> yes, breaking a Rapsodo in the name of science. In the name of science, uh, right? Yeah, it was. It was. And your most recent uh, experiment was trying to use your radar gun on your dog. That, yeah, well, also which was just a lesson, in, which turned into a lesson in ground clutter, if I'm not that, mistaken. Right. That's right. It did. Yeah. So I mean, dog short. <laughs> I mean, all of these systems use basically scene detection in one fashion or another to to really understand how fast the ball is spinning and in what direction it's spinning. And so, you know, for TrackMan, which is a Doppler radar based unit, it's taking a look at it essentially creates a radar profile. And there's actually you have a sphere and then there's sort of nodes along the sphere that indicate the scenes. And so it's Side taking lobes. a look. At, yeah. So it's taking a look at how many times those lobes are rotating around a certain spin axis. And from that, it algorithmically derives, you know, how fast is it spinning and, and what axis is it spinning on. Um, and that's what people are calling observed spin rate. And it's because it's more observed than what pitch FX did, which was <clears throat> deduce the spin rate from how much the pitch moved and how fast it was going. Right. Kind of like a fine, like this is like actually looking at a, specific signature in the radar these side lobes that indicate you know that you can use to figure out what the spin is doing but it can be fooled correct yeah so a good example of that is you know the red dot slider that we talked about where when that spin axis if you think of like a gyro ball like a ball spinning like a football a lot of sliders have very similar spin to that their spin axis is typically oriented um pointing towards home plate or pointing kind of towards uh, the you know opposite handed batter's batter's box from a certain pitcher or whatever. But what happens is you essentially have um, a spin axis pointing towards roughly the home plate area and the ball's just rotating around that axis. And so from the radar standpoint and even a camera standpoint, the spin is, is really kind of, and I'm going to sort of butcher this from a technical standpoint, but it's really symmetrical. It's hard for this, the system to say that it's rotating at a certain rate um, because there's the point that it's rotating around 
is stationary in the view of the radar and in the view of the camera. So regardless of what system it is, it's really challenging to measure that appropriately. And I, I think that's where you see some issues with um, capturing that data and actually presenting it correctly because you know, you're using algorithms based on what is being observed. But if what's being observed is sort of fooling the system because of the nature of the particular pitch, then you, you're, it's a little bit of like garbage in, garbage out. Um, it's, it's to me though, like, cause it's a useful thing. So if I'm working with pitch at with sport vision data, with the, the optical stuff, extraordinarily low spin pitch is it's, it's going to be a slider, uh, almost every time. Uh, with TrackMan system, a very, very low spin pitch is going to almost always be a splitter. Right. Um, and, and a slider is either going to be high spin or no spin at all. So depending on what the spin axis is. Basically. Yeah. Some, so some pitchers are prone to having no, you know, just extreme under counts on the spin. So it's kind of a similar thing, but it, it's, but there's like a true, like, yeah, that's, that's an actual, you know, RPM from a, a splitter, you know, and, it's really so you if you it's a different mode of interpreting spin between the two systems in terms of pitch identification um because you have to kind of put your own like expertise into that discussion and to say like i know that this this profile this guy yeah i know know, yeah it's useful it's like i know that this like in pitch fx i know the spin rate for slider is totally inaccurate and systemically so and I, that, that's helpful. But here's the problem, though. If you have a pitcher throws a splitter and a slider and a pitch FX system, it's right, really not easy to tell apart. And with the TrackMan data, it's much easier because you'll have, you should, unless the pitcher's one of those guys where he's throwing it like just a gyro spin or football spin, whatever, that he, he's getting a lot of null <laughs> spin readings. Right. Even though the ball's going 2,200 RPM. So it, it's... You know, there's one system's better than the other in terms of making that distinction. So that's something I've definitely learned over the years, especially since they've started switching to the TrackMan based systems and Major League Parks. That you know, low spin means something different. And yeah, if you're so looking at those two data sets together, it can be, you know, like a different rule. The rule of thumb changes basically. In other words, how do I interpret this data? It's like we have to understand how the artifacts are generated how they manifest and, and then how they get show up and when they show up because you get similar artifacts between the two systems, but the nuance and when and why they show up, it makes, you know, makes me work a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so like in layman's terms, for example, the reason that like the splitter slider conundrum is a really good example, right? Um, the difference between the two types of systems, one optical, meaning they use cameras to actually um, track the movement of the pitch and then figure out what is the uh, spin rate that would have to cause to, that would have to be there to cause that movement. In that case, you're using, you're backing into spin rate. And so you're using only basically Magnus spin, which is spin that creates movement. Mm-hmm. And then trackman on the other hand is a radar unit is getting all spin. So it's getting like complete total spin on the ball, gyro spin, which does not create movement, but has other purposes. Um, and Magnus spin, which does create movement. So this conundrum is really interesting because a slider, for example, in real life is typically a really high spin pitch, but it has very low Magnus spin. Um, 
the spin that actually creates movement is not very high because of the spin axis. And so that's why um, a slider can like what resemble a spinless pitch. Correct. In many yeah. ways, you know, not a knuckleball, but like a pitch where there's no magnus dips because knuckleballs flutter. But like it moves like a pitch that has no spin. But the only reason it holds that path that makes it look that way is because of the spin. The gyro spin, right. <laughs> you know? Whereas a splitter, a splitter is a very low spin pitch in general, but a lot of the spin on a splitter um, as, as a percentage creates movement. And so you'll see essentially when you're looking at the amount of movement and what spin would cause that, uh-huh. a splitter and a slider can look really similar. But when you look at the total amount of spin on the ball, a splitter and a slider are very different. And so those are sort of the two limitations of the two different systems and how that manifests itself in the spin data that gets reported. So gyro spin, you call like you've mentioned football spin and gyro spin. Is that similar to like the way I'm totally out of my depth here with this, but like a bullet spins? Yeah. Don't bullets spin like is that the correct? Idea? Yeah. So, I mean, the reason that um, a bullet or a, a gun barrel is rifled um, is to create uh, gyro spin, and it's the same reason that a good pass from a quarterback in you know football uh, has really tight spin. It's because gyro spin stabilizes projectiles in flight. So, um, you know, if you have a ball that's spinning um, with pure gyro spin it's going to stay straight and fly true more so than a pitch that has any other spin on it. And so that's why like a wobbly pass or a pass with loose spin in a football game is usually less accurate than a pass with a really tight spiral because that tight spiral provides stability to the ball in flight and it helps it kind of fend off like wind or air pressure changes or whatever. Is it kind of like gravity? It seems like it's kind of like gravity, like where gravity kind of pulls itself, pulls everything towards the center of the axis. No. Yeah, I don't know. Gravity's just pulling everything straight down. <laughs> well, so if you think of like straight down to the center of the axis, though, like the Earth's yes. axis, that's okay, yes. spinning. That's yeah, so like gyro spin is basically like um, trying to pull everything towards the true line of you know travel or that true spin axis of travel, and in that way, it is kind of similar in that it's always pulling in that direction. And then as a pitcher, generally speaking, you don't want that, right? Like you don't want a perfectly straight pitch. That's called a batting practice, a batting practice pitch. So that's when pitchers apply backspin or topspin or side spin or whatever to create different movement profiles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like you're tilting the axis, you know, you know, you're spinning it. It's, it's like you're doing, you're doing multiple things. Like you're counter, you're either, you know, just using what your arm path is giving you or trying to counteract it with some type of action or pressure and then, you know, finger placement or what, what, you know, how, how much you get of a seam or don't get of, of a seam. Like it's all these, these things, but it's like, it's all this like notion of like, I want the ball to spin thusly relative to the orientation of the seam. So if I get the seams going this way and the spin going in the other way, away, that's what I'm going for. It's, it's the combination, seam orientation and angle of the axis. Yeah. 
I mean, if you look at the, some of the old Lensner stuff, like playing the slots, like he shows basically the notion that the ball is going to turn this way and whatnot. And he focuses on that. But when you get into the really refinement of like, well, you want to turn the seams a different way, that's part of it, part of like the nuance of like how, you know, you don't want to just have pure gyro spin. Okay, well, you know, tilt the ball, tilt your hand, move the seams. And I always kind of recommend <clears throat> I always kind of recommend for people when they're first trying to learn about the aerodynamics of pitches and how spin affects things and how um, air turbulence affects things and how drag affects things. Like I think the space that really owns this is golf. Um, and so uh, I actually, I mean, I started back in high school doing research on the aerodynamics of different dimple patterns and kind of how these golf companies have created dimple patterns to create like turbulent air layers around the ball, which keeps it more stable in flight and less susceptible to, um, you know, spin rate causing you to hit like slices or hooks or anything like that. Um, but it, it's all the same principles in play. You know, obviously the biggest difference is that with a golf ball, it's uniformly dimpled. And so you get uniform turbulence around the ball in flight. And so you really isolate spin movement because side spin on a golf ball creates that slice or that hook. Um, but that's really kind of fascinating when you're looking at like laminar flow and how that can affect ball flight on a pitch because you essentially can can artificially create a dimple pattern on half of the baseball. And that obviously changes the way that the ball is going to operate in, you know, flight as it's headed towards home plate. And then layer on top of that, you know, let's throw a curveball with a certain spin or let's throw a change up with a certain spin. And obviously that affects, affects the ball flight as well. And so all these things kind of build on one another, but the fundamental physics and the principles behind it are all the same, regardless of whether it's, you know, a golf ball or a baseball or whatever, you know, there's obviously nuance to how each of them manifests, but cricket the too, concepts you know. are the same. Yeah. Cricket's a great one. Cricket's actually where Rod Cross, who yeah, yeah. was he sort of great videos. <laughs> yes. And then, I mean, because in cricket, you essentially have a ball that has a single seam down the middle of the ball. And so by orienting that seam, you create laminar movement. And that's how they throw curveballs, right? Like their curveballs come from laminar movement oftentimes. Um, and it's all because of airflow around the ball and, and how it's treated and what spin is put on it. And it's all really fascinating stuff. But it's, I mean, it's certainly complicated, right? It's, it's, uh, yeah, the cross has some stuff where he is like, you know, basically drawn on the ball and stuff. And, and his YouTubes are, are great because they demonstrate, he throws some like crazy pitches because he has like specially weighted things to exaggerate the effects, but, <laughs> you know, but he can, yeah, but it's really neat. Yeah. And I think you can very clearly see it. Um, he uses like styrofoam balls because the lighter the implement that you're throwing, the more the effect of airflow impacts it. So, um, I mean, this is sort of common sense, but like if you drop a feather and blow on it, it's going to move a lot more than if you drop a brick and blow on it. Right. right. So, um, you can actually test all of these theories on styrofoam balls and see how it works in real life and then try to try to apply that knowledge to a baseball pitch. You see, you see, there's also a video of a person dropping basketballs off of a cliff or off of a dam, you know, and if you just drop it straight, you know, you don't do anything, just not spin the ball, which pretty much just goes straight down the face. But then they put a little bit of spin on it, just a little twist, you know, just a little, and it created this massive amount of movement on the ball. 
so in that long drop, it just it, it, it there's you know we we'll have to find all these create a little YouTube playlists or something because you can see just these in these extreme settings you know whether it's styrofoam or a cliff uh, what a little bit of spin will do and how that plays with the seam or seams or dimples or smoothness or roughness it's and all of this is like. I mean, everybody knows like mm-hmm. wiffle ball, like because because of the cutouts of a wiffle ball and, and that type of thing. That's why it it gets that crazy movement. But it's all the same effects. And Jeff, like what you're saying, it's it's a light implement, so it's gonna really exaggerate that movement. Totally, yeah. So I actually did a paper in college on the aerodynamics of wiffle ball, and it's exactly that, right? If you hold a wiffle ball in your hand with the holes facing to, you know, your quote unquote glove side or away from your throwing arm and you throw the ball, it's going to move, um, you know, in that direction, right? Because the way the airflow is going to move, um, faster on one side of the ball and slower on the other. And it's going to suction the ball that way, just like an airplane wing. Uh, you create a pressure differential, which makes the ball move. And, the fun thing about with ball is you can do a lot of weird stuff. Like if you throw the ball with gyro spin with the holes facing towards home plate, you can actually kind of like pack the ball full of dense air, which makes the ball sort of function like a, a knuckleball in a lot of ways. It, it fills up with so much air that it becomes actually much heavier than the air around it. And then it does weird things. Um, but the basic principles are the exact same, right? You're, the holes in a wiffle ball create different airflow patterns around the two halves of the ball, which then creates movement in particular directions. And so that's why you can throw risers and sinkers and um, curve balls and screw balls and all sorts of things just by throwing the ball perfectly straight because of the orientation of those holes and how the ball is traveling through the air. And it's light enough where it can rise. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have the weight of a baseball. Right. Can actually rise. Yeah, I mean, it's you're talking about p- putting enough force to overcome gravity. So what? Yeah, like an airplane, feet, thirty-two feet per second, whatever. Yeah, so you know, it's a weight. It just, you know, if it's a lot lighter. It's a lot. It's a lot less force to apply. Right. If you could throw a baseball as hard, if you could throw a baseball as fast as an airplane goes at takeoff, it would rise too. <laughs> you know, and I think that's the thing is it's all relative. Um, so it's just a okay, lot there easier. There is a spin rate you could put on a ball to make it rise, create a rising forcing fastball. That's not humanly achievable. So <laughs> I would, I think someone's like the, uh, this reminds me of the XKCD cartoon about the plasma. Positive ball, fastball. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The speed of light fastball and how it would implode the earth. Yeah. It's pretty cool. A lot of turf. So so this was a bit of making sausage. We're gonna work on these tools. Then Jeff will then I'll tell Jeff if his article's overselling it or not. But we're gonna try and put this stuff out into production during the season because uh it's fun. Why not? And that that type of tool, um, yeah, is that like a what would would it be? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, it will be a tool. It'll be on a website, yeah. and people will be able to use it. Is it like? Would it be like? Um, I don't know. It's going to be. I don't know. It's going to be a thing where you drag and drop, or maybe you slide a thing and put in a number and press a button, and thing comes up. I, I already sent Harry wireframes, so yeah. <laughs> perfect i mean i think it's gonna cut so there's a lot of factors right um 
I think ultimately what we're going to look at is we'll take a picture and show kind of what their repertoire actually looks like. And then if we add a particular pitch, we'll have to figure out some sort of uncertainty and confidence intervals and that sort of thing and say, we're, you know, 90% confident that a ball, that a curveball thrown by this pitcher is going to be in this area of the plot in terms of vertical and horizontal movement. Um, and, you know, we may have to tighten it more than that, right? Like if we get 90% confident, maybe that's just way too large of an area to actually be useful to anybody. But we'll test through some of that stuff and figure out how do we make it useful for people yeah, so that yeah, um, yeah. it actually gives you some interesting and insightful information as opposed to just being super hedgy and, and kind of, well, we don't really know what's going to happen. Yeah, it's a lot of work has to go into this. So we'll, we'll, So we don't really know. But the basic idea is that yeah. hey, these things work, and this is we we can we can produce something that's fun and may or maybe even useful. We'll see what happens. Sounds good. Thanks for coming, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me. What goes up must come down. Spinning wheel got to go round. Talking about your troubles, it's a crying sin. All right. Thank you again to Jeff for coming on and uh, having that great conversation about pitch design and pitching and physics and uh, all of those things that there's a lot goes into it. (laughs) I think myself and um, I think probably a lot of other people, it's uh, a good uh, baseline understanding of kind of the physics of pitching and um and and how, how to do that and how to measure that and also like what, what we can learn and and then where we can apply that or where baseball players can apply that i think that, that all of that stuff is exciting and will be really cool to see um the different tools that come out of it yeah i'm looking forward to it too definitely a fun place to play so Harry, yes, seen any good tweets lately? Yeah, well, there was an interesting little video thing that came out that our friend Rob Arthur produced that, and he and he kind of tweeted about this topic. But our our old friend, the Juiced Ball. I mean, this is something. This is something that's not going to go away until much to the chagrin. Until, yeah, well, everything just needs to come out because Major League Baseball saying no, there's no substantial change to the ball that's changes characteristics. But every independent person who's studied it has found otherwise. So there's been they have found at this point, and this is what Rob tweeted was that I'm just going to read it because this is going to be great. I'm going to read a tweet. There's now evidence that every part of the ball has changed: the core, the yarn, and the surface. And he continues a bit, but basically. It's like, yeah, uh, you, hello. Like they looked at the core with like you know CT scans, they and and the chemical decomposition. Like just we'll have to link up all the stuff. But there's been all the stuff to show the ball changed, and now uh, Meredith Wills has shown that. You know she hasn't published the paper yet, but I guess that's coming. Um, and when, when she's published it, we should have her on the show because it'd be good to talk about this the analysis of the yarn and how it's changed. Uh, so there's a little video segment that Rob produced that has uh, our friend Russell, uh, as well as Meredith and uh, Jared Diamond from Wall Street Journal, all talking about some of the stuff that kind of makes it look like the 
why there's more home runs, but it seems everything points back to the ball. When this is not going to this is not going to go away until MLB releases all this data they say shows that it's not changed. Like, right, they don't that's, shows. that's something that that they've kind of maintained throughout the whole course of this conversation of as you know, there's nothing has changed or everything is. Kind of Everything's within normal with, manufacturing within, parameters, yeah, exactly. or we don't think there's an explanation that, that it's like there's always. But I mean, at certain point, it gets real. It's like, well, what about this? What about that? It's like so the cover, the seams, the core. I mean, excuse me, the core, the yarn, and the surface of the ball have all measurably changed, and in, in several independent researchers. Now, some of these are using the same. You know, there there could be issues here. You know, with maybe there's not enough baseballs available in the sample, and, and they're trying. You know, efforts to get more baseballs are kind of it's kind of difficult. Um, and so it, it's tricky. It's like it's really hard to say they've proven anything, even with all this abundance of information. You can't say, "Well, we've proven the ball." It's, it's, you know, but at the, by the same token, it's now getting to the point where we can't say it hasn't changed. And the only people who are saying it that authoritatively are not sharing all the information. So it will keep going. And <laughs> it's just that simple. Well, it's going to keep going. Is there an effort um, on Major League Baseball's part to, you know, there's like, they're looking into this too, right? They like, clearly are, right? Like they, they mentioned that maybe they'll narrow the manufacturing parameters. And I thought that was a big thing bigger thing than people know that made it, you know, kind of underplayed, I think. Yeah. Uh, but also the, the humidor investigation, like they're now after, you know, 15 years of it in Colorado and with Arizona adding one they're they want teams to start keeping better tabs or standards on how they store the baseballs. Right. So, I mean, there's, so they're saying there's, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I don't know what they're saying. There's, it's not clear. And that's kind of frustrating as a baseball fan. Because and I'm not just saying that from my own like perspective, I'm saying that it's just, I think on behalf of more many more people that it's like we'd like to know. And is it? It you seems <laughs> it seems to me like it's not even a question of oh we we don't want the balls juiced as much as it is. We want to know. Like, we that's want what to know Justin Verlander truth. said. Like, right? Justin like, Verlander was out posting data, you know, and heat maps <laughs> again i uh I, I mean i tweeted this out but um open invitation justin if you'd like to come on the show, on the we'd show. Be happy to talk to you very anytime justin wants to come on talk to him about pitching of course yeah, absolutely come on up but the yeah he so it's like when the players are doing it and they're saying i just and what he said i think uh, almost verbatim was i just don't want to be lied to it's like if, if it were right. all pitching with the same you know hobby or baseballs fine, fine. yeah I mean, and Verlander, because Verlander's been getting people out for a very long time. He's going to be in the Hall of Fame. He's one of the best pitchers of our of this current era. And, uh, he, you know, he, he's not complaining about, about the fact. He's yeah, like, yeah, he's not saying playing, guys are taking just, me just like, you know, just, can we just tell Can you just tell us the truth? Because something doesn't jive here. He's basically saying the same thing I'm saying, which is, you're saying nothing changed and there's nothing different and there's nothing, there's nothing there, but it's like everything. He's like, this is just like, he's like, explain this then, you know, and explain this, these trends. And, and he's like, 
you know, why did things change at the All-Star break in 2015? What was different? You know, is a difference in the balls, a difference in stack cast and how it's being reported? What is it? What's different? And he was, he was Verlander specifically, I think, was a guy who said after the World Series, the balls definitely felt different. Is that right? Yeah, he, he said so. Him, right? he, oh, he, I, I mean, and a guy like, I mean, an elite, elite pitcher, a guy who had to have body control to lower his velocity and bring it back up later in games. I mean, just an incredible feel. I, he says the ball feels different. I believe him. Yeah, I mean, it's like this. This is the. I mean, I mean, I'd say believe right? exactly like, what he just said. like it's different. And when these guys say it feels different, like we should believe them. That that I've come to believe that. Like where, you know, where they, you know, there may be some weird things about how like we interpret what they're explaining, but the fact that it's different in some way, they, I, I trust them. Because they would notice. You would think you, they should. And, of course. Anybody and, uh, who doesn't notice that, I, I kind of question their like paying attention skills, right? Like, it's the, it's the ball, like you know. And these guys spend a lot of time with a baseball in their hand, so they know what it feels. They they know that they can tell the difference. They can, you know, it's. But it's again, it's like, well, that's subjective. It's like, no, I mean, but it's also expertise. Well, they may be primed to believe it's changed because the second said, okay, fine, you're right. You know what would really be helpful if you just expose all the data you have on the manufacturing of the ball? Thank you very much. You know, just tell us what's gone. What's happened is any changes in the plant. Like, And the fact that there are people finding changes at every level of the ball, it's like, come on. It, it, the ball's different. Right. And, and, and whether it's a concerted it, it effort just or if, if it's like not, it doesn't really matter. It's hard to say. It's, it's like it's like I, I'm very hard pressed to believe that the ball hasn't changed when those pictures show those CT scans show it's different. And you know, and not just Meredith, but other people apparently have independently found differences in the yarn as well. So it's not just you know, just baseball analysts. It's not just random PhDs like her and Rob. You know. Like serious science people, serious scientific training, understand how to do these things. Right. Um, yeah, it's not. It's, uh, and there's other non-baseball people, you know, involved who don't have like a baseball writing stake in it. You know what I mean? It's like you can say, well, you're just trying to make a story. Like, well, no, that this lab at some university, they don't, they don't have a stake in that story. They're just show, they just showing us the imagery. And the right. imagery is a red like this, you know, and uh, the, the, the ball's different. Chemical composition of the core is different. The yarn's different. Surface feels different. And it shows up differently according to the study that MGL and Rob did, so or Ben. And so it's just, uh, okay, what makes you, th- you know, so it, you got they have to show their cards, basically. I, I've said this like 10 different ways now. Basically, it's a, MLB really has to just open up and be like, this is the deal. And and if it's some if it's count runs counter to the things they've said so far, they're just gonna have to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, and at, at some point, there's you can't really like continue to move forward on that when th- so many things are pointing the other way, and then give yourself an opportunity to to kind of backpedal. Like every time Major League Baseball comes out and says anything about the ball that doesn't have the data they're making it's, it that much harder it's, it worse. To actually, it's actually making it worse actually come, come clean or at least 
release the yeah, information. Yeah, exactly. Is it just 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 do it. Just tell us tell us that we're all wrong. Show us, and if we're, everybody's right, and all these all these researchers are correct, uh, okay. That's a good, That's there's probably going to be some accountability. That's the thing. If that's the case, like if they know the balls change and they've been saying otherwise, there could be consequences by like, professionally. And because seriously, I mean, that's when you know it's just not people won't be happy. But if they just be like, well, here's the study, and we don't see here's the data and we go oh okay well we can see if it's, it's if it's legitimately like our analysis is not showing fine just show us show just show it to us why won't you show it to us is it in everybody's interest to just be like you know it's hard to be it's hard to say just trust us when every study has shown like, like every every aspect of the ball has been studied and been shown to be different through multiple methodologies, even in some cases. So it gets harder and harder to just say, trust our data that we're not showing you. Yeah, for sure. Just show us the data. Maybe the data is good. Maybe the data is not. Let's um, take a look. Yep. So on that, um, that's a, I think that's, a long show. It's a long show. Thanks for bearing with us. Yeah, but you know, every two weeks we have things to say. That's right. We kind of have a build up. So, again, a uh, huge thank you to Jeff for coming on, and um, and congratulations and thank you to Sean O'Rourke who could not make the show but did, did talk to me a lot about radar stuff before, and congratulations to him on his PhD. So. Congratulations, Sean. So, can, do you know if we can call him Doctor or? I'm not that- calling him Doctor. I'm not giving him that satisfaction. I'm not. I'm not in an academic setting with him. Is that the? Is that the? Uh, That's generally. Yeah. Usually, usually, we don't. People don't refer to you know non-medical doctors as doctors outside of academic situations. Well, then I won't do it either. Yeah, don't, Sean. Sean. If that's your real name. I'm pretty sure it is. But it is actually. <laughs> yes. Just, All right. <laughs> well, we're going to wrap it up. And we're going to say good night and goodbye, baseball! <laughs>